Hi, this is Kev Legs Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. I am thrilled and overjoyed to say I'm now joined on the phone by the legendary Paul Jones. Paul, are you well? I'm extremely well, thank you, Kev. Right. Uh, you've had such a long career in various things. Where do we start? But I believe you started out as P.P. Jones with somebody named Elmo Lewis. <laughs> Elmo Lewis, yes, uh, which but didn't last very long. But then P.P. Jones didn't last very long either. But uh, that was Brian Jones, of course. Yeah, and he and Keith Richards asked you to join their band, didn't they? Well, <laughs> I'd I'd actually already asked him if he'd like to join my band because I I had a semi undergraduate band. It's partly they used used to call it town and gown. In other words, some people were students at, at the university, and some were people who just lived in Oxford. And um, it was a it was quite a decent band. It's sort of mixed talents. And I lost my guitarist because he got married and his wife thought he ought to do something slightly more lucrative than play in a, an occasional band. <laughs> so I asked Brian if he'd like to join my band. And I've never forgotten his answer. He said, I don't care to be in any band unless I, I'm its leader. Right. Um, I said, well, I'm its leader. So, <laughs> <laughs> But we stayed friends. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, as he, yes, as you say, sometime later, he asked me if I would like to join his band. And I told him no as well, but uh, not because I wanted to be its leader, but um, for two reasons. One, I thought he was being unduly optimistic, thinking that he could actually make a living from playing the blues, because nobody else I knew was making a living from it. They were playing it as a hobby. Even if they were professional musicians, they were playing other kinds of music for money or for a living, you might say. Uh, the other reason was actually I'd, I'd only just passed an audition to sing with a, a band, and it, w it was a dance band. But you might think that's a bit of a sort of dead end, but mm. actually it wasn't. It was, I learned a lot from being in that band. Uh, great musicians. Again, they were, they were doing that really for the money, for a living, and then they were playing what they would rather play, which in their case, most of them was not blues, but jazz. But anyway, I learned a lot from being in that band, and I've never regretted turning Brian down, because as I've frequently pointed out, if I had joined that band, that getting ready to be a band band, it would never have become the Rolling Stones, not as we know it. It only became the Rolling Stones when Mick and Keith were in it. Yeah. A few years ago, I had the honour of chatting with Tom McGuinness, and he was saying when he was learning, you'd hear of somebody across town that had got a record, and you'd travel across town to hear that record and learn the chords. Even to see it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, what, was... was that the same kind of thing with you then? Oh, yeah, it was just it was pretty much the same. I mean, I, I kind of knew, I think I sort of knew Tom McGuinness roundabout then or maybe not i haven't quite met him then i had a piano player in my band called ben palmer who later became cream's roadie ben and i put a, a an advertisement in the melody maker asking for musicians 
actually, were we asking for musicians or were we asking if, if there was a band that needed us? <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you put in a, a thing saying, you know, musicians wanted for band forming. Yeah. Or other times you might say, two excellent blues musicians looking for a band. And I think that was what Ben and I put in The Melody Maker, and Tom replied to it saying, well, I haven't got a band, but I'm a guitarist, and if you've got a pianist and a singer-stroke harmonica player, and I join you, we've nearly got a band. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that was probably about 1962. You were saying that bands of that era were playing the hits to earn the money and doing blues as a sort of sideline. So yeah. what were you playing then? Was it the hits or were you heading towards the blues? Oh, in the uh, in the dance band, it was definitely the hits of the day. And just occasionally we would sort of, because they would play standards, they played a lot of standards, I mean, by which I mean sort of pop songs from a previous era, you know, theatre songs and songs from musicals and stuff like that. But just occasionally, I, I would be allowed to do something that actually wasn't a hit in the charts, but that was rare. So it was mainly that sort of thing. Oh, gosh, I can remember having to sing uh, Bobby V songs and Joe Brown songs and, uh, oh, yeah, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Were you listening to blues at that point or did that come later? Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, listening to blues all the time i didn't you know it, it was like as tom said if somebody had a, a particular lp you would cross town to hear it or, or even just to look at it and read the sleeve notes on the back <laughs> um but I, I i probably at that time had i thought if i had 10 lps that's probably an exaggeration um i had Actually, no, I probably did have 10 because I had a few jazz albums. I had some stuff with Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet and Jelly Roll Morton, stuff like that. But as far as blues was concerned, I had Muddy Waters, who I guess probably the first Muddy Waters album I had was the live one from the Newport Jazz Festival. I'm not sure what year that was, but probably 60, 61, maybe 62. Well, was uh, there a particular track or artist that turned you on to the blues, or was it? Oh just... yeah, very, very definitely. I mean, I, I was uh, to some extent I was already listening to the blues. I was listening to particularly the, the, the sort of acoustic and earlier forms of blues, uh, Sonny Terry and uh, Brownie McGee, and yeah, Big Bill Brunsey. Oh, and um, interestingly, Mose Allison. Right, uh, but. I used to go to a shop in Plymouth. My father was the captain of the dockyard in Plymouth. And uh, being there during vacations, I used to go to a shop called Pete Russell's Hot Record Store. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, saw it, I saw its advertisement in the local paper and I thought, that's the place for me. If that sells hot records and it's called a store, not a shop, um, I, that's the place for me, definitely. And I used to go in there and spend what little money I had. One day I was in there and Pete Russell said to me, you're a blues fanatic. What do you think of this? And he played me a T-Bone Walker album. It was actually a French album, although the, the original record came out on Atlantic in America. 
and it was called T-Bone Blues. And on T-Bone Blues, there was a song called Play On, Little Girl. Just keep on having fun. You keep on playing till your playing days are done. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, unusually, very unusually for T-Bone Walker, who I instantly recognized as a genius, he had a harmonica on a couple of tracks. And that harmonica player was Junior Wells. And that just that one track told me what I was going to do with the next four or five decades of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I went out and bought a diatonic harmonica. I think it was a blues harp, a Hona blues harp. Good. And uh, I started to try to play it. Well, not long after that, Brian Jones said to me, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't actually use the phrase, I suppose you know you're doing that all wrong, but that was what he was saying. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what key is that harmonica? And I said, well, it's in C. And he said, and what key are you playing it in? I said, C. And he said, well, that's where you're going wrong. You want to play the blues, you've got a C harmonica. Play it in G. And I went, okay. And it was like Brian had opened this locked door in, or gate into a magical garden. Yeah. <laughs> it was a whole new world for me. Well, if anything was going to turn me into a harmonica player, the first thing that I remember hearing was Cyril Davis's Country Line Special. Oh, yes. Well, it's just such an upbeat tune. I just absolutely love that tune. I, I never get sick of playing it. Uh, you know, I, n- I, never per- I never learned to play Country Line Special. I'd seen Cyril Davis live a lot. and that, But that, of course, was before he ever made that record. Mm. And... Uh, I know that Cyril Davis, like me, was a big admirer of James Cotton. Right, yes. But I, I, could, I couldn't honestly ever say that Cyril was an influence on me because um, I was kind of, you know, off and running, as it were, before I even heard him. And by that time, of course, I was listening to Little Walter, Big Walter, Sonny Boy Williamson, and all those other people. Yeah. So I, I, I couldn't count Cyril as a an influence of mine, although, you know, I loved what he did. Yeah. When you joined Manfred Man and you started getting hits and you'd go over to America, did you feel in some ways that it was almost like selling ice to the Eskimos when you were playing blues songs over there? <laughs> Not really, because, because blues was was very much niche music in America, just as it was in Great Britain. Yeah, okay, it was, it was the music of black America, but by the time... See, we, we, that first hit of ours was early 1964. By the time we actually got to go to America, which was very late in 1964, African-Americans had turned away from the blues in quite big numbers. Um, because at that point, you were having, if not soul music, certainly proto-soul music. And that became the music of African-Americans for the next goodness knows how long, probably ever. Yes, it now, now mutated into sort of rap and house and goodness knows what, but they they kind of given up on the blues. And the the guys who were doing really well playing the blues were actually playing to mostly white university students and people like that. 
we well, didn't feel we were sort of taking coals to Newcastle or selling ice <laughs> to Eskimos. We thought we were uh, we we were just sort of looking for the remnants of the blues yeah. that were still there. Well, uh, I was just thinking while you were saying that that if you look at the footage from Newport Festival or festivals of that era, it is quite middle class white Americans that are in the audience mostly. Very much so, yes. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I didn't realise until I was doing the research on this is that you co-composed the theme tune to Ready, Steady, Go. At, at that point, I was um, I was already uh, the main songwriter for Manfred Mann. And uh, in fact, we, we were only on Ready, Steady, Go at all um, because of a, a song of mine called Cocker Hoop, which was our second single. It's not something that I care to play too often nowadays. <laughs> um, it was a piece of juvenilia, but it was, um, I, I suppose I, would, I could truthfully say that the main influence on it was Bo Diddley. Right. So it, it, it pretty much had that dang, 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 bang, bang thing about it. And uh, it was called Cocker Hoop, and it was all about, it was all about the Manfreds, actually. So... The people at Ready Steady Go liked it and had us on the program doing it. And that still didn't help it to get anywhere because it <laughs> didn't. But um, while we were there, they said, would you actually be interested in writing us a signature tune? So we said, yeah, we could, we'd very much be interested in that. So Manfred and Mike Hug, who were, after all, the founders, and I, as ipso facto the main songwriter, just set to work and and did it very quickly. A bit like uh, Noddy Holder with Merry Christmas, everybody. It's a little earning on the side there. It's, it, it's, it's um, five four three two one is probably my main earner. Yeah, yeah. In term in terms of songwriting, even though I've only got a third of it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I've got I've got some other decent ones. But but yes, that that's probably my. We never did a Christmas song. I wish we had. But anyway, um, you're quite right. It's 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 uh, my equivalent to Noddy's. When you left Manfred Man, you went on to acting, and the 1967 film Privilege that's become a cult classic. Did you want to go into acting, or were you approached? Very much the latter. Um, my my only acting up until that point was I, w I was King Duncan in the school Macbeth in my last year, <laughs> which I hated doing. The only good thing about King Duncan is that he gets killed in the first act, so I, that, I so I didn't have to do too much. <laughs> I was never thought of myself as as having an acting career at that stage. However, Peter Watkins. Who, whom I very much admired as a, a, a film director because I had seen, well, most recently I had seen television drama that he did on about the Battle of Culloden and thought how wonderful it was and how very interestingly it was filmed. And uh, all of a sudden, he, it turns out he's doing a film about some rock star being manipulated by the uh, powers that be. And... Uh, Yes, I had a phone call saying, did I want to be in this movie? Well, you went on to do much more acting over the years. Yeah. Um, what well, do you do some more? 
I'm I'm not doing any acting at the moment, and I haven't done ooh, for a good few years now. I, I I started not doing it because I was so busy with having both the Manfreds and the blues band, and I had an agent in an inertia sort of way. I have still got the same agent, but um, at that time, uh, they used to send me, when I say at that time, I mean years after I'd been at the National and the Royal Shakespeare Company and all that, um, I would get queries from theatrical companies putting on projects. They would be along the lines of, uh, would you be interested in doing this or that play or musical in two months' time. (laughs) And I would say, say, the only reason you want me is because I'm (laughs) (laughs) well-known. And because I'm well-known, I'm not free in two months' time. If you want me, you have to ask me if I'm free in two years' time. And so that just ground to a halt, really. Mm. I've never... That's not something I regret at all. While you were acting, you were still performing, and there was mm. a, an infamous tour of Australia and New Zealand in 1968. <laughs> Dare we touch on that? Yeah, we can, we can talk about that <laughs> if you like. You got over with the Who and the Small Faces, and it didn't end happily. <laughs> um, no, it, it, was, it, was kind of, it was kind of weird. I'd never been, um, I've never really been one for rock culture, if you know what I mean. Mm. And in consequence of that, I, I found a lot of what went on on that tour quite mystifying, really. <laughs> but I was quite friendly with Kenny Jones from The Faces yeah. and Roger Daltrey from The Who. And... I realized, in fact, I I said this to Roger some years later after we were sort of well back in the United Kingdom. I mean, really, quite a few years later. I said, um, Roger, I think you and I, and possibly Kenny Jones, were about the only sane people on that tour, weren't we? And he said, most definitely we were. (laughs) (laughs) But what was kind of funny about the... It wasn't really the end of the tour. It was about halfway through or maybe two-thirds of the way through the tour. We were, I think we were flying from Perth to um, Sydney. And uh, we'd been very late to bed the night before and very early up to get this plane. And so most of us were just knackered. I mean, just completely either asleep or just sort of staring out of the windows (laughs) in a dazed sort of way. Um, I can remember very clearly that the most physical activity that was going on was, I think it was Kenny, had a, there was, there was a family in the row in front of him with a, with a little tiny baby. And this baby was sort of like looking over the parent's shoulder. Mm. And you know when you, you, you do with babies, they've got those little tiny, tiny hands. Kenny Jones held out his little finger and this baby clasped his little finger with the whole of its um, fist, if you like. Yeah. And, you know, you, you do that with babies. That's what, that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> and that was honestly the most activity that I could see. <laughs> However, not many minutes later, 
we were all accused of rioting. Mm. And I, I, it was, it, it honestly, it was completely mystifying to us all. I worked out later what it was. We all had long hair and we were untidy. Yes. And yeah. um, I was actually the most riotous person in the whole party because they were serving coffee and tea coming down through the cabin and they came to the rows where we were and they stopped serving coffee and tea and then they resumed selling it behind in, in the first row behind our party. So I turned around and looked over my shoulder and I said, we'd like some coffee. And the air hostess said to me, you'll get coffee when I'm good and ready. And I said, no, you're serving those people coffee and you've, you've left us out. Bring us some coffee. Whereupon she strode up the center aisle and came back with the uh, second in command of the flight who said, right, which ones were swearing and threatening you? <laughs> and um, the pilot made an unscheduled landing, probably in Melbourne or somewhere. And uh, and we all had to get off the plane. Oh, you rock and roll rebel. Which I know. <laughs> I know. And, 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 the, and the ridiculous thing is, I, I was then appointed spokesman for the group because, you know, I kind of speak nicely <laughs> <laughs> and so you know i explained to the police and uh, anybody else who wanted to listen what had happened and uh, nobody actually believed us they, they thought well you you know you're rock and roll people you must be you must be lying you must be uh, fighting and swearing and rioting and stuff and not one jot of anything we did could have been described as fighting, swearing, and rioting. Mm. So, so um, I, I never raised my voice or certainly didn't use a swear word or anything like that. So um, so it was a completely manufactured yeah. incident. It, well, uh, it really didn't deserve all the time I've just given it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump forward to 1979 then, when you formed the Blues Band. Now, mm. one thing that has puzzled me all these years is that nobody else had actually used the name the Blues Band before. No, as a matter of fact, I didn't want to use the name the Blues Band. After all... I knew about the Muddy Waters Blues Band. <laughs> I knew about this and that Blues Band. And I thought, it's a bit sort of grandiose to call it The Blues Band. Do you know, I, I, I came up with a name that I wanted to call it because we'd got together in a kind of very haphazard way. I telephoned Tom McGuinness and said, look, I'm putting a band together. Are you interested? And he was. And I said, well, who should we get next? And he said, let's get Huey Flint, because they'd been in McGuinness Flint together, and uh, they'd, they'd had their differences, but Tom was keen to mend bridges with Huey, and so that happened, and that was good. And then getting Dave Kelly in was a bit of an accident, really, and then Dave brought Gary Fletcher with him. So it, was, uh, it wasn't a hand-picked band it just kind of came together and uh, i said oh i've got the perfect name for this band we're going to call it job lot <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And I still think that would have been a great name because it was punk. It was punk days, you see. Yeah, yeah. Like 1979. I mean, well, 76, 77, it really got going, didn't it? But but it was still, it was still the music of the youth. And so I thought Job Lot would be a sort of really good name. Yeah. And... For a band. Uh, and everyone said, that's a rubbish name. We're calling it the blues band. So I said, oh, all right, we'll call it the blues band. <laughs> Because um, they were all big fans, uh, and me too, of the band. Yeah. And, you know, nobody said to the band, how uh, how sort of arrogant and outrageous. There's all these wonderful bands in the world, and you call yourself the band. So we called ourselves the blues band, and actually, as far as I remember, no one accused us of being arrogant and outrageous. Yeah. You'll have to refresh my memory because the weekend for me was a bit hazy, but did you appear at the very first Great British Blues Festival at Colne? No, I can't refresh your memory on that one. I, I don't know. Mm. Um, we we did. We certainly did the Blues Festival at Colne, uh, and more than once too, but whether it was the first one or the second or the umpteenth, I have no idea. Yeah. I was going to a lot of festivals in those days, and... They just seemed to merge a little bit. But uh, I would have thought with it being the first one and the blues band being so revered at the time that it was almost inevitable that you would have been there. Great. (laughs) I mean, it's nice to think that we were revered. Oh, definitely, (laughs) definitely. Um, I've seen you a few times over the years. I saw you at Bottlewind Castle many, many moons ago. I saw you recently at the... New Vic Theatre in Newcastle. And you, oh, had, yes. you had a stand-in drummer there, which was Dave Kelly's son. Yes. And the, the look on Dave's face when there was a little drum riff going on, he, he was looking across like a proud parent. It was a joy yes. to behold. <laughs> he, does, um, he, he does value his son Sam very much, and quite rightly so. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's lovely to see that. Proud, proud dad. <laughs> On my other show, I have a feature called The Beatles Bit, where I play people covering Beatles tunes. And over the years, there have been a number of blues versions of Beatles songs, and they work quite well. But you do a version of a Bee Gees song, don't you? Ah, uh, yes. Well, that was Dave's idea, and, and uh, I, I think there were some eyebrows raised when he mooted it. Well, but, uh, when he introduced it, my eyebrows raised, but it works. Yes. Well, apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently uh, they actually wrote the song for Otis Redding. Wow. And um, Otis actually was going to do it, but of course he was in that awful air crash. Mm. Actually, there, there is a sort of extra little irony about that. Apparently, the, the title song from the, the film Privilege had been slated for an Otis Redding session shortly after that fatal air crash right. as well. Mm. And uh, that, that would have been lovely uh, for me. <laughs> but so w- w- when Dave read that To Love Somebody was actually originally intended for Otis Redding, he thought, oh, imagine, imagine what that would have sounded like and then he just started to play it with an acoustic guitar just for himself. And he thought, we can do that. 
And we were having some rehearsals and he started doing it. And we stood there and we said, yep, we're going to do it. Yeah. And I think it works extremely well. I very much enjoy doing the, um, the backing vocals on it as well. It is a surprise, but it does work really well. This tour that you've done is the farewell tour. You're saying goodbye to the blues band. Is that purely touring or recording as well? Um, I, I think the idea is that uh, we really come to an end as a band. I think this. I think this album is so good that there might be something going on sometime in the future, but I don't know. I mean, we've put out good albums before, and then it's been four years before we did the one after it. Mm. So, um, hey, who knows? Yeah, never say uh, never. I, I do. I do think this is a, a fine album to be finishing up with. Yeah, but you are still continuing with the Manfred, sir. Yeah, as I'm not retiring. Of course, the first thing that uh, we, we had was a lot of um, letters from people saying, oh dear, it's awful, it's very sad, um, but I hope you enjoy your retirement. And said, that, that word is not in my dictionary. It's not in my vocabulary. I will not retire. No. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going on with the Manfreds, and uh, I'm going on with lots of other projects as well. Hey, 42 years, or yeah, I think it's 43 now, 43 years is enough, really, for one band. Well, yeah. I mean, how long did the Yardbirds last with Eric Clapton in it? <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. And, 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 and for that matter, how long did Derek and the Dominoes last? <laughs> <laughs> well, talking of Eric Clapton, that brings me, let's go back in time to 2009, the album starting all over again. That featured Eric Clapton and Percy Sledge, amongst other people. Um, yes. Did you ask them, or were they just in the vicinity at the time? <laughs> well, let's let's um, put the Percy Sledge one first, because actually that was a, uh, that was a session musician job for me. Um, this uh, lovely chap called Saul Davis, who lives in um, sort of Beverly Hills somewhere, um, uh, and and is a, a kind of fan of Manfred's blues band, me, Tom McGuinness, uh, uh, etc., lots of things, and of Percy Sledge, was producing a Percy Sledge album. He, he rang me up and he said, would you come and play some harmonica on uh, at least one track of this Percy Sledge album I'm producing? So I said, I'd love to. So he paid my relatively cheap airfare. <laughs> And uh, I turned up in Los Angeles and played on this Percy Sledge record. There were great sessions because Saul does book really, really good musicians. So it was a fine band. And the great Phil Upchurch was on guitar, I remember. And I've got a lovely photograph from the session. And I'm thinking, I'm really keeping some good company now. (laughs) (laughs) And while I was there... Saul Davis said, why don't you do a duet with Percy on this record? So I said, well, it, it sort of depends on what Percy thinks, doesn't it? And he said, yeah, but he's up for it. And he was doing this song, Big Blue Diamonds, which was a hit by some fairly obscure outfit from a long time ago. I thought, oh, that's lovely. I, I, I'll, I'll sing that with him. So I did. 
and it came out on that Percy Sledge album, which I think is called Shining Through the Rain. And uh, when we were putting together, starting all over again, um, I thought the album was like one track short, and I said to Saul, do you think Percy and his record company would allow us to borrow that track and put it on my album? And uh, he said, let's ask. And we did ask, and Percy said it was okay. And so it came, it turned up on my album as well. That's why there's a track featuring Percy Sledge, as if he were my guest. But actually, the truth was, I was his guest. Right. As for Eric, um, not long before that, I had been on a live gig um, with a band led by Gary Brooker, whom we now mourn because he died a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So sad. Wonderful artist. Anyway, um, Gary had this band, and um, it was kind of a, a lot of the personnel from Bill Wyman's Rhythm Kings. And some of the, the guests were, oh, I, I remember, um, I think, well, definitely Leo Sayer was on it, and there were various other people as well. But Eric Clapton was there, and I was there. And uh, we we did various things, you know, in different permutations. And uh, I'd recorded with Eric in 1966. He said to me on that occasion, he said, uh, I said, oh, you don't want me to play on this. He said, I want you to play on this. It was something he was doing. He said, I do want you to play on this. You don't seem to realize I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought, that's great. I filed it away. And um, I don't know, whatever it was, three or four years later, I, I, I rang him and I said, look, I'm doing my first album for 38 years. Um, and uh, I'd so love it if you'd come and play on a couple of things. And so, you know, we sent him some tracks and he picked these two. And... Uh, he came and played on the title track of the album, which was an old, a wonderful old hit from uh, the early 70s, I think, starting all over again. I'd also done a song called Tubes or Cop Out, inspired by a book I'd recently read. I said, I'd love it if you'd play on that too. So he played on that, and it's wonderful. I mean, his playing on it is just superb. Um, is it still the case that you are the president of the National Harmonica League? Ah, uh, yes and no. I am still the president, but it is no longer called the National Harmonica League. Um, They decided to modernise the name. It's called Harmonica UK. Ah, short and catchy. Yes, yes. (laughs) And so, yes, I am the president. Uh, um, There are sort of Ooh, there are patrons and vice president and all kinds of other people, but I am still the president. Right. Um, and, uh, and delighted to be. You also contributed a set of questions to Mastermind. <laughs> I did, yes. Was that about blues? It was about harmonica. Um, blues harmonica. Right. That was... Um, the guy, they, they said, what is your special subject? And he said, a blues harmonica. And they said, that's a bit... That's a bit sort of wide. Could you um, could you narrow it a bit? And he said, "Well, what do you think?" And they said, "Well, well, I mean, what about um, what about narrowing down the the time frame?" And he said, "Oh, I see. Well, yeah, okay." 
and he said uh, a blues harmonica from 1930 to 1960 or something like that. Well, that was great, but 1930 was a really lousy year for blues generally because it, it was the year after 1929. It was the great stock market crash, and record companies were not um, spending much money on anybody who wasn't absolutely guaranteed to sell a million copies of something. So uh, that, that was a bad year, especially for harmonica players, and it stayed bad for a little while. And um, I, I, I did my best to come up with, and they said, we need the questions in three categories, easy, medium, and difficult. So I said, okay, and I, I, I made them 30 questions, 10 in each of those categories. Mm. and the guy didn't do very well. And he actually wrote to me, whether it was at Jazz FM or Radio 2, I can't remember, but he wrote to me and said, why didn't you ask me any questions about... And then he named, he named a load of harmonica players from the 20s. And I said, well, unfortunately for you, none of those musicians recorded in the 30s. I think Tammy Nixon did, and possibly Noah Lewis, but all those guys like Bullet Williams and Jay Bird Coleman and Alfred Bird Legs, whatever his name is, it, uh, those guys recorded in the 20s and didn't get into a studio in the 30s. I'm sorry, I couldn't ask you any questions about them because they vanished from sight. They, the fact that they weren't in a studio anywhere is in a way neither here nor there, but it does mean that we never heard anything from them in that period of time. So, uh, unfortunately, you signed your own um, <laughs> failure warrant <laughs> by choosing uh, that, that, that. If you had said from 1940 to 1970, I could have given you so many questions. <laughs> Over the course of the years with broadcasting, uh, meeting and playing with people. Have you become a bit of a historian? Uh, I don't really think so. I, I used to have that kind of reputation slightly because I would always have some facts at my fingertips regarding whatever track I was about to play or just had played. But the truth of the matter is I <laughs> I had the, the booklet notes or, or, or I had, you know... Um, who's who in the blues yeah. or some of the most important encyclopedias or dictionaries or I discographies. Have, I have said on many an occasion, if it's not written down, I know nothing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but of all the people that you have met, performed with or interviewed, which one gave you the biggest thrill? Um, I have to say Memphis Slim because Memphis Slim was absolutely a giant in in fact physically he was because he was well over six feet probably about six three i think um but also musically a giant and uh he stretched from the late 30s right up to i would say the late 80s quite an achievement and made some wonderful records and i got to i got to make one of those records with him live at ronnie scott's club in london but he was also the very first person that I ever interviewed. And I interviewed him when I was still a student at Oxford. 
And I must tell you, I only lasted for one year, so I must have been very young. <laughs> but um, he, was, he was fascinating, and I always, uh, always admired him enormously. Um, yeah, I, I, I got to know and like a lot of other people. Um, I think if I go right the way through to some of the latest interviews that I did, uh, the one with Taj Mahal and Keb Mo both together when they came out with that mm. joint album, uh, that was a great joy for me. We, we laughed a lot, and a lot of that got cut. <laughs> <laughs> but it was wonderful fun. Yeah, I... I would love to interview either of those people, and I keep trying, but uh, one day their defences might fall. Yeah. Um, it's been an absolute joy. I'm looking at the clock now and how long we've been chatting, and time has just flown, and there's still questions I would love to ask you, but thank you so much for taking this time out. And uh, I wish you all the best for the... I was going to say your retirement, but it's not your retirement. You are still going strong. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Yeah, well, me too. Um, just before I go, why are you called Legs? Oh, you used to be in a band many, many moons ago. Oh, right. And the vocalist was introducing the members of the band at the end of the night, and he said, and on bass, kept Legs Walker. And we'd not, <laughs> we'd not discussed it beforehand, and I thought, well, it could be worse. So yeah, yeah, I've had that okay. for about thirty that was really, years. Now. Yeah, yeah, I should have realised that. Shouldn't I? <laughs> anyway, bless you. Kev, thank you very much. It's been an absolute joy, and I hope you enjoyed that little interview there. And there will be more as we record more for the show, and we are going to delve into the archives and pull some of the old ones out as well. So plenty more to come, and of course, if you want to hear the whole show, there is always listen again. I'll see you next time. Take care.